0: y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I have the incredible privilege of chatting with Paul Mendez, author of the stunning debut novel Rainbow Milk. Published in April by the Amazing Dialogue Books team, Rainbow Milk, an Observer 2020 Top 10 debut, is one of the most beautiful books ever written and my favorite of 2020. Oh, and it's just been longlisted for the 2020 Gordon Byrne Prize. And I'm certainly not alone in the Rainbow Milk Reader Fan Club. Just scroll through social media and read the countless glowing reviews from readers, writers, and journalists. Rainbow Milk is the book of 2020. If you've read Paul's stunning debut novel, you'll definitely understand why the love continues to grow and why literary legends like Marlon James and Bernadine Evaristo praise Paul and his stunning debut. Rainbow Milk has two central characters, Norman Alonso and Jesse McCarthy. The first section starts in the 1950s, where we meet ex-boxer Norman and his wife Claudette, who moved to Britain from Jamaica with the Windrush generation, excited at the prospect of a new life in the black country. Three years later, now with two young children, Norman and Claudette face unexpected racism and heartbreaking illness while working incredibly hard to build the life they dreamed of and so deserve. Fast forward to the turn of the millennium, and the book continues with Jesse, who is hoping and searching for answers outside of his Jehovah's Witness upbringing and life at home in the black country. And these answers might just be in London, where Jesse moves in the hope of starting over. As a young black queer man in London, Jesse welcomes his new sexual and emotional freedoms, but through exploration and experience, sometimes finds himself at a loss for balance and stability. The unexpected challenges and often heartbreaking surprises that Jesse faces on the road to true connection and love are so beautifully written that you'll ache in places you never knew existed. This extraordinary book written by an extraordinary black queer author is everything. I loved this book with my whole heart, mind, and soul. It is an absolute masterpiece. It was such a privilege to chat with Paul about his own experiences, the book's beautiful characters, the importance of honest and raw sex scenes, and why we must always honor the stories of the Windrush generation. I really hope you enjoy this episode. So it's probably one of the warmest days of the year, and I cannot think of a better way to be enjoying this summer day than to be chatting with the one and only, the incredible, the... Utterly amazing, talent beyond talent, Paul Mendez. How are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you, and all the better for being buttered up.
0: I have a Google alert for Dialogue Books because you know how much I love the family, and Mm. I love, love, love seeing all of the authors coming up whenever any kind of you know coverage comes for books or if you guys do interviews or you do any live events. And I will say, and it will come as no surprise to anyone listening, that Paul is coming up occasion after occasion after occasion. And I, following you on social earlier this week when you were saying to physically see your book in a bookshop at the moment, that obviously that's been denied to you uh, for the last few months given everything that's going on. I would love just kind of how recent this feeling has been for you, for you to talk through. What are you feeling? Like, how does it feel to physically walk into a a bookshop now and see Rainbow Milk so proudly displayed on shelves?
1: I I just want to sort of start by saying that I've had a great launch. Um, I've had a fantastic time. Um, We chose to publish in April Um, from a long time ago um, and on April the 23rd in particular because it would have been my grandmother's 90th birthday so it was just really important that that not be moved and you know obviously a lot of people who are bringing out novels um, during the spring uh, postponed them until later on in the year because of the lockdown and because you know nobody sort of knew what was going to happen so we sort of accepted that you know everything would be cancelled my book launch would be cancelled all of those kinds of things but you know when you're writing a book um, that's what you think of that's sort of the light that you see at then the tunnel when you're doing all these sort of hours and hours of research and of uh, sort of trying to find the right word and trying to fix your sentences etc you just sort of visualize seeing your book on the shelf next to your favorite authors and next to you know people who are next to you in the alphabet so i I sort of know Charlotte Mendelssohn quite well and Um, I've always sort of joked with her that um, my book would be next to hers on the shelf. And so just not sort of seeing that and having that moment delayed, it almost felt like the book wasn't really out and it's kind of still sort of not really happening the way um, people are telling you it's happening. And so finally, it was just basically the final piece of the jigsaw, if I can use a cliche, um, to walk into my local daunt um, where I was going to have a small launch in April and to finally see Rainbow Milk on the shelf, it was quite an emotional moment. It's everything I've worked for for a very, very long time, just that moment of seeing it um, in the wild. You know, I have copies here, you know, I can see it, but just seeing it, um, exactly, yeah, just seeing it on a shelf in a bookshop where anyone could come in and sort of pick it up, obviously having sanitized their hands first. Yeah, it was just a wonderful pleasure and privilege.
0: I can imagine um, that having worked so incredibly hard for you know obviously a number of years and this being your debut novel as well, it's probably a very mixed bag of feelings in terms of like you are quite literally feeling all of the feelings. Um, and I can absolutely say hand on heart that even though it might feel at times that it's not real because you haven't yet seen it on a bookshelf, All you have to do is look at social media and see the endless numbers of posts, videos, again, going back to those articles, just how much love this book, your book, is receiving is just extraordinary, and it's not just... Great as a reader to see this, to to connect with other readers, and to also say to them, I loved this book as well. What did you love about this? I mean, to have that connection is just extraordinary. And I, I have to start this episode by saying a huge congratulations for being long listed for the Gordon Byrne Prize. That obviously is absolutely incredible. You know, as I've said, it's just such a well deserved accolade. And I just, it just brings me so much joy as a reader, as a, a massive fan of the Dialogue Books family and yourself to see you being recognized in this way, not just on everyday social media posts, which are equally as important, but also to be recognized for um, for this book, which it so should be. And I just would love to know, you know, you've had praise from some absolute king and queen literary legend, Marlon James, Bernadine Evaristo, readers everywhere just, just literally cannot stop talking about uh, this. And I literally can't stop talking about it. And I have to form a question here shortly. But I, I wanted to read the beginning of the the Gordon Byrne Prize website because I really liked this line. And they say on their website that they love novels which dare to enter history. I would just love to know what your thoughts are on this word, whether you feel that you've dared to enter history um, with this absolutely beautiful debut novel.
1: Well, I think history is something that black British people have an ambivalent relationship with because to a very large extent, history hasn't been written by us and is a construct that we are compartmentalised into. Um, You know, it's still commonly believed that the black story on British soil began with the Windrush immigration wave as it began in 1948, but most people don't realise that black British history extends all the way back into Roman times, that, you know, Britannia was once governed by a man of half Libyan descent. You know, if you go into certain parts of the country which vote a certain way, you know, you'll be hung drawn quartered for saying something like that, but it's true. You know, and you go, you sort of leap forward to the Georgian era, late 18th century, the black population of London alone was estimated at over 30,000. So there's much literature that has been written and largely ignored by people like Bernardine Evaristo, with uh, The Emperor's Babe, her novel from 2002, for example, and literature yet to be written to expand upon black British history and give it its rightful place in the broader British narrative. Um, And that which observes queer aspects of British or black British history is even rarer. And, you know, when you talk about daring, you know, it feels like uh, my connotations of that um, pertain to sort of radicalism in some way. You know, people's identities aren't necessarily radical. It's the response that they get and the sort of fights that they have for freedom and for the same rights as everyone else um, that are seen as radical. But with Rainbow not being part of a conversation, um, sort of knocking those doors down, you know, hopefully there'll be many more sort of stories, um, you know, by people who share my descriptors, for example, um, and it won't be radical anymore. It won't be daring anymore. It'll be as normalized as anyone else's identity is.
0: Yeah, and it's such an important conversation to be a part of and also to to follow and to lead. And obviously at the moment, a lot of people are listening even more so than they have before. Um, and I know that especially at the moment during Pride Month, um, which is, is probably uh, for many a very different type of Pride Month, given that, you know, we're not having parades, we're doing a lot of stuff indoors. Um, and I know a lot of people are going to James Baldwin You know, for that black queer perspective, that narrative. Um, And what I think is really lovely is that your book is carving out an even more defined path in terms of people being able to pick up this book and to read and to learn from and to understand that black queer narrative. Um, And as you said, a lot of. Black writers and authors that have been present for a very long time. We've just celebrated Windrush Day on Monday, which is obviously very important, uh, you know, 72 years of, of celebrating this day. And, and it's just, I think, so important to really not only have people be reading, you know, those anti-racist texts and books that are, are so important to the conversation, but also fiction, non-fiction, poetry written by Black writers, authors, Black queer writers and authors. And I'm just so thankful that your book is there for people to pick up and to be able to do that. And it seems absolutely absurd to say this, but I realize that there will be some people who haven't read your book yet or might be in the middle of reading it. Um, and so before we get on to everything that I absolutely loved, and I know I've shared this on social media, but your book was one of my absolute favorites for this year. And I would love for you to to talk about what Rainbow Milk is about.
1: Sure. Um, Rainbow Milk pulls together two narratives that of uh, a gentleman called Norman, a Jamaican immigrant in his early 30s. He's moved to the Black Country in the English West Midlands um, in the mid 1950s as part of the Windrush generation. And we sort of see him for a while, sort of, you know, with his children at home. Uh, we learn that he has come upon unexpected. Um, illness, and the Britain that he moves to is very, very unlike the Britain that um, Jamaican school children are taught uh, about. Um, And so he has this sort of, I guess, moment of reflection um, on a beautiful hot summer's day, very much like this one. But then we fast forward to the turn of the millennium, to um, a third-person narrative, but very much on the shoulder of the protagonist, Jesse, who's a 19-year-old gay closeted Jehovah's Witness, who after being outed flees his hinterland and arrives in London where he engages in sex work as part of a process of de-indoctrinating himself um, from the religion and creating a new system of beliefs that eventually leads to him seeing a future for himself from which vantage point he's able to delineate and understand the legacies um, and his place in the world.
0: And that is uh, a very good summary. Obviously, uh, you knowing it very well by heart. <laughs> um, it, it's very some
1: difference every time. Well, it's
0: very difficult to to summarize because there's so much beauty and so much wonderfulness in this book and to for someone to say give me an elevator pitch or to even give me a summary is like right what do I put in it what do I include I feel especially as an American that we have very much this tunnel view of if you ask an American uh, you know where they visited in the UK it's kind of the, the standard answers and I believe that a majority of Americans have not visited the black country but what I really think is beautiful about this is that we are going to the black country and we go there with Norman we go there with his family we go there where where he and his wife have come over as part of the Windrush generation. And when we open with the book, we have uh, their two children, their two young children that they've had since they've moved to England. Um, so we have Robert and we have Glory. And there's just this real sense of pride that I feel Norman has when he is speaking to his neighbors um, and he's communicating with them in terms of, you know, it, it feels like you're you're stood there and you're observing this as, as in, in like the first person, because it just feels like, a conversation that you would hear in the in the streets today, um, you know, just between two neighbors that you know kind of uh, respect each other and and really want to to know each other. And I just think that there are just some really interesting elements of community that go within your book, whether it's community that's been built from scratch or whether it's uh, being part of a community that's already there that welcomes you. Um, and what I would really love to know uh, when you were sitting down to write this book is. Um, how welcoming did you want people to feel when they were reading Rainbow Milk in terms of did you want people to kind of come in knowing a little bit about themes and the topics and stuff, maybe having known about the Black Country or maybe not, in terms of how welcome were you thinking that people would feel when they when they came into your book to, to learn about Norman and to learn about Windrush Generation and to learn about what Jesse would, would be going through when they came into London?
1: Um, That's a really good question, because for me, you know, I learned a lot about the Windrush generation and about my grandparents, you know, I'm um, from that diaspora, like I'm, you know, my grandparents all came over and, you know, from Jamaica in the 1950s. Um, But I didn't know anything, you know, they didn't tell me anything. I asked one or two questions, but didn't really get much response. Um, They were very circumspect about their lives early on um, uh, in Britain and in Jamaica and sort of the reasons why they moved over here. Like, I just didn't know anything um, until I read Small Island. And that was sort of back in, not even that long ago, sort of maybe 2010 that I read that and sort of thought, wow, like, so, oh, okay. I just knew nothing. So to an extent, I mean, that's, you know, we don't live in that world anymore because, you know, the Windrush scandal, for example, broke in December 2017. It's been all over the news. We've had films made. We've got so many books that have been written about it. It's been discussed at government level, rightly so. Um, There's been lots of hand hand dringing and talk of statues, etc. So, you know, we've increased our knowledge about it. So I knew that I didn't necessarily have to write like a a whole novel about Norman's life, um, because we already have a lot of the knowledge, like a lot of it. You know, a lot of the research that I did was based on small anecdotes from people who have been interviewed in the last few years and who are in their sort of 80s and 90s now um, and do not really remember a great deal about what life was like then. So until you get books like Colin Grant's Homecoming, which very sort of helpfully um, pulls together hundreds of individual perspectives of that time, um, there just wasn't really that much to go on. And so I basically took what I knew of my grandfather, who my dad never knew. He died when my dad was two years old. You know, he, like Norman, um, came over fit and healthy. And then as soon as he sort of came over he started to experience migraines and um, sight loss. Um, eventually went to a doctor who, I don't, don't want to give it away because I've sort of added it to the, to the story. I've sort of given that to Norman. But, you know, it basically structural racism stood in the way of my grandfather sort of living and, 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 keep, and retaining his health. But I just wanted to sort of have his character there just as an anchor to Jesse, because I realise, and probably realise too late, but realise now, better late than never, that um, the way certain things have happened in my life is because of what Norman went through and what um, people like Norman... Um, lived through back in, you know, between sort of 1948 and 1972, what we sort of class as the Windrush generation, Um, because that's the start of the relationship really in modern times of white England and white Great Britain with its colonies, because obviously the slave trade happened overseas, Britain's involvement in the slave trade happens overseas. So where we differ from the United States, the relations between white and black, black slave and white owner in America played out on American soil we have a whole history of that we've got books we've got paintings we've got etchings we've got music that's been written we've got a whole kind of 400 year survey whereas here in the UK slavery was illegal on English soil so we just we we have no sort of visual record uh, or anecdotal record at least until the sort of abolitionist period of black-white relations here so we're really sort of talking about something very different which is still something that's kind of in its infancy and sort of being unpacked even now we're seeing almost every day new Guardian articles, new interviews that Amelia Gentleman is um, exposing us to of ever more insidious disgraces I guess that have been perpetrated against people from the Windrush generation and their descendants there's a lot to sort of bring out of that but it's not just you know the doom and gloom and the hostile environment these are real people who had their own hopes and dreams and you know the reason why they came here is so that they could raise their children and you know that they would have like a good education and better opportunities than they had back home and there's a tension in all our lives between hope and reality and that's kind of what I've explored with Norman and with Jesse.
0: Ooh, yes, that is uh, an absolutely incredible way to explain everything, particularly looking at the Windrush generation. And as you were touching on everything there, it made me think about sitting in limbo that was created to portray the life and the Absolute disgusting experience of Anthony Bryan. Um, Mm. And like so many others, I absolutely loved this because it is something that you sit with and it is extremely uncomfortable to watch and to process. But for me, the uncomfortable conversations and the uncomfortable thoughts that are going through people's minds right now are for me perhaps some of the most important that people need to be having internally with themselves. But also I feel that it shouldn't take as extraordinary as this portrayal is. It it should not take something like this to get people's attention and to wake people up to, to everything that's happening. Um, Mm. I think textbooks, particularly from an educational perspective, do not even scratch the surface of bringing alive the stories of um, history that we so need to continue telling over and over again. And as wonderful as it is for people to, you know, use hashtags and as wonderful as it is for people to acknowledge something like Windrush Day that happened this past Monday, it's watching these films, it's it's listening to podcasts and interviews. Why is it taking something like this to really start having these conversations and to really care more important? about these conversations and these people you kind of touched on this when you were talking about how you created uh, Norman and Norman's story but I really would love to know more about how essential Norman's story is to this book.
1: Well Norman wasn't really supposed to be part of Rainbow Milk Norman was something that I did um, separately and it sort of occurred to me after I'd handed in the book actually that Norman's story had to be Part of Rainbow Milk, and because Jesse's based on me and Norman's based somewhat on my grandfather, it sort of seemed natural that they would sit side by side, and that there would be a generation between them that they would sort of discover and sort of shape for us as readers between them. So it's almost like um, there's a collaboration between the two happening. And uh, with Norman, I mean, I'd been doing some acting, so. For me, I was very interested in what his voice could be and what his physicality might be living in um, a small cramped 1950s sort of council grade house um, with two small children. Being a very large man, being sort of six foot four, you know, an ex-boxer, big sort of physicality. Like, what is it like for him to, to live with two small children and not be able to see them? And I was living in Brixton at the time with um, a family, uh, some friends of mine who had a two-year-old son. And he was, always used to sort of strew his sort of toys all over the house and, and et cetera. So um, one day, I when I was alone in the house, I put a blindfold on and tried to sort of navigate the space. I'd lived there for five years by that point, so I knew the space sort of fairly well, but still it was remarkably difficult to... Um, and and, you know it was a psychological thing more than anything just sort of not knowing where everything was and suddenly sort of being sightless and that really gave me an insight into into who Norman was and what he was dealing with Uh, but this came after doing a little bit of research at the British Library into um, Jamaican flora as it might have been in the 1950s because I was just really interested in the idea that he could be a gardener and did all that research, but I I was sort of thinking about, I must have seen something, I can't quite remember, but I must have seen something in the news that day that really sort of um, triggered this. Um, But I was really sort of um, interested in this voice and in sort of speaking um, in a first person monologue um, in a Jamaican accent, in, in Jamaican Patois, and sort of just talking about what life would have been like for someone living in England in the nineteen fifties, especially in the very sort of white working class black country where I grew up as well, and I sort of suffered quite a lot of racism, mostly in the sort of form of name-calling, but some violence as well. And I'm third generation, so what must it have been like for my dad and then for my grandfather in turn? You know, this being at the time of Oswald Mosley and his um, fascist agenda, of you know, the Notting Hill riots happening in, in 1958. Um, you know, the death of Kelsa Cochran, the um, Antiguan who was murdered by a group of white men who saw him, just saw his black presence and decided to stab him to death. Um, and so I pulled all of this together and went home and um, recorded myself giving a monologue just completely off the top of my head. And it just became It became the first draft of what you read in the first 48 pages of of Rainbow Milk. So, yeah, I think that's where fiction really, I mean, you're talking about textbooks earlier. And where textbooks are great, you know, they give give us a lot of facts, they give us a lot of contextualized history. But what they don't give us necessarily is individual stories and individual voices um, that, you know, can be lost because, um, those individual voices don't necessarily have the empowerment to be able to sit down and write in a way that, you know, because let's not forget, if not, even if Norman did write his story, you know, who would have published it? Do you know what I mean? Who are the gatekeepers in publishing who are sort of um, allowing us to uh, keep a record of our stories? And it's very important that fiction writers, that poets, that novelists, um, get into these spaces, take the facts, and with our skills, build the world around them and contextualise history and contextualise the individual with history. Uh, and that's just what I try to do with with Norman. And to an extent, even though Jesse is based on many of my own experiences, to an extent it was the same kind of process. You know, Jesse's very different from me. He moved to London in a different year. You know, he moved in 2002 when certain things such as Um, post-exposure prophylaxis for example for you know to to try to sort of preempt HIV transmission weren't necessarily under trial then they were for me but they weren't for Jesse so how does that change his experience especially after um, some of the things that he's had to deal with in the novel so you know a lot of research comes into play a lot of engagement with the world of the time and again you're sort of writing about someone who's not necessarily um, had a voice before so it's just you know your job is is kind of a really important one in terms of preserving their experiences and contextualizing them within a wider history, um, such that we can look back and say, you know, what have we learned? Have things changed between those three generations? And if not, why? And what can we do in future? That's the novelist's job, because at the moment, like we were saying earlier, history has been written by a certain group, and that's not necessarily us.
0: And that generational intersectionality is very important in your book in so many other books as well. Um, and I think you do such a beautiful job of giving Norman the voice um, and for us to understand his story and to understand the heartbreak and the disappointment that I can only imagine came with moving over to England with so much joy and expectation and hope. And it's interesting, as you were saying, you know, who would have published Norman's story back in the, um, you know, the 50s, the 60s and the 70s. And um, Mm. it was making me think just how grateful and how appreciative I am for an imprint like dialogue books um, Mm. to be available to everyone now and obviously Charmaine and you know Millie and Celeste and, and, and the whole team do such a phenomenal job promoting and championing voices like yours and, and narratives like yours and for me I, I agree from the textbook perspective and I'm so in love with history that for me it is important to understand the facts but it is even more so important to me to know the stories and the voices behind it um, so books like Remembered by Yvonne Battle Felton um, to truly understand the, the pain of and the suffering behind slavery in the US but also that even though those stories occurred in the past they by no means diminish their value and diminish their importance as the years go on in fact even more so I think they become even more important.
1: Well they become so important because people forget.
0: Exactly, exactly. You
1: know people forget within one generation and um, they think that you know I think every 20 years we get something like this. This is what I've been told by people who are around 20 years ago, saying we, we went through this 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and yet we're going through it again. And, you know, Dialogue Books is what's going on now. But, you know, the previous generation had, you know, there have been various authors like S.I. S. I. Martin, um, Carol Phillips, the aforementioned Andrew Levy, Bernardine Evaristo, who have been writing about Black British history and contextualising and you know, individual stories within that history for a long time. Yeah. You know, we've, we've got novels about the Zong massacre, such as Fred Degas' Feeding the Ghosts, mm-hmm. for example. We've got the knowledge people have been writing in this country for a long time decades about black British history decades about black British history both from a contemporary and from historical perspective and yet you know people like to think even now that you know black British history is sort of quite a contemporary thing which you know it's kind of exasperating I think is the word.
0: I think that's a really good word for it and you know I've had the immense privilege of listening to Bernadine Evaristo speak live you know I've been to an event that she uh, did at the Huddersfield Literary Festival you know her book Mr. Loverman that she wrote um, you know about a much older black queer man. Again, those stories have always been there for us to pick up and I agree. I feel like this has happened before but what I absolutely don't want to happen is I don't want people to to pick up your book or to pick up any book and put it down after they've read it, and one, not learn anything from it, two, not discuss it, and three, um, feel that their work is done and feel mm. that they can exactly. tick, tick tick something off and say, yeah. do you know what, I've read a book by a black queer author, I, I'm okay with myself now, um, yeah. because there is still so much work to do. The work Same.
1: never stops even for me. And I'm in this black body and have been every day for 38 years. So, you know, nobody else has an excuse. Colonization never stops. It never stops. And we have to keep, keep, keep doing the work. And it's not even as if it's like work. You know, there's some absolutely great literature. So much
0: enjoyment and joy.
1: Exactly. And, you know, so many sort of mind-blowing books.
0: Like this one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I got introduced, I mean, I'm doing the MA in Black British Writing at Goldsmiths. um, And I did it so that I could learn more about Black history from Black voices, uh, for one. And also because I've written Rainbow Milk and it sort of pulls together so many of my own experiences um, you know, if I want to, you know, to write again, like, you know, what am I going to write about next? You know, I wanted to be able to inform my future work. But it's really introduced me to some absolutely great writers who I'd never known anything about before, like, you know, Bucci and for example, whose works, I don't even know if they're in print currently, but uh, they're absolutely great. You know, if you're talking about what it's like to be basically a middle class in, in, in Nigeria, but you move to England and you're suddenly a second class citizen. And, you know, one of her novels, her London realist novels is called Second Class Citizen. And it talks about from, you know, quite an autobiographical perspective, but um, brilliantly written novel, the story of a woman called Ada, who um, follows her husband, sends her husband to the UK, follows home with their by then two children. By the age of twenty-two, she is a mother of five. Her husband's a complete waste man. He claims to be a student, but is never passing any exams and won't get a job. Decides that it's um, her business to be sort of taking care of the family while she's writing novels and doing um, a degree in sociology, which she hopes to turn into an MA. And if you sort of go through her later works, including autobiography, Head Above Water, you see that she achieves what she set out to do, um, was to buy a house for herself and her five children to grow up in. And she did that through writing novels, which, you know, being a Nigerian author, female author in the 1960s and 70s, it's not something that, you, that is a given. You know, she had to work extremely hard. Unfortunately, she came upon people like um, Margaret Busby, who for many, 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 many years was the only um, black British female editor, along with her business partner, headed up the imprint, Alison and Busby, and they uh, published um, Boucher and Machete. And so you've got this incredibly precious, I feel, and important narrative and body of work preserved, and that's because there was a gatekeeper um, who understood that it wasn't just misery memoir, understood that it needed to be sort of preserved understood that we're going to be carving out a new narrative and finding new readers to buy work like this and to sort of to um, to, to engage with it and hopefully start uh, new conversations and dialogues and dialogue books I guess is kind of part of that legacy which I'm extremely privileged to be part of.
0: And you know going back to uh, and to echo everything that you've just said, you know, the books that have previously been there um, for, and, and there really is no excuse as to why people shouldn't have been reading all up until this point. Um, and the, these books, your book um, and so many others, whether they come from dialogue or they come from any other imprint that is really championing and supporting the inclusivity and the diversity and really removing that um, inequality within the publishing industry, they are, for me, a catalyst and also really important in terms of the forge that further path of where other authors can come. And for me, Paul, reading your book, obviously I do not identify as a black queer man, but reading your book, I so hope that there are people out there who will pick up your book and say, this is my my voice, my narrative, my story, and enable them not only to feel that someone else has gone through what they've gone through, but also to feel safe in the knowledge that your book has been published and that this is making them feel more seen than they probably have felt in a very long time, um, particularly if you know they have had a journey that has, for whatever horrible reason, not seen them in the way that they want to be seen. Um, and I mm. just think that that is so important. It's just such a beautiful thing to know that someone, essentially what I'm trying to say, will pick this up and actually feel seen because you have written it.
1: I hope so. I think one of the problems we face is, and I'm not sure it's a vanity issue, but people need to see themselves reflected in, in books. You know, Girl, Woman, Other is one of the best novels published in the last five years by any like measure.
0: Completely agree.
1: And even, even after it was given the sort of fanfare that it deserved by winning the Booker Prize, still, you know, I'd be reading Mr. Loverman, as you mentioned earlier, on the tube, because I studied it as part of my MA last term. And someone reading the London Review of Books got on so if they're reading the LRB on the train, you know, you know that they're sort of literary people and that they, you know, keep in touch with what's going on, especially with who won the Booker Prize. And yet she interrupted me and said, oh, is that good? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, it's great. And she said, well, what about the one that just won the prize? You know, what's it called? Um, I said, oh, Girl, Woman, Other. Oh, yes, that's the one. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. And she's like, oh, should I read it? I'm like, how many more people do you need to convince you that this book is worth your time and that you're going to, you know, not just learn something, but be fantastically entertained and challenged. You know, what Bernadine has done is sort of created almost a new form. And it's just so readable, but so challenging in every line. There's always something new that you almost have never seen before. And she's managed to collect it all together into an incredibly readable, incredibly sort of identifiable with piece of literature. And yet, you know, I don't need to tell you that this was a middle-aged white woman who was saying this. But, you know, it really seems as if she needed absolutely everyone to force her to read this book before she would do it. And I'm not sure that that would have been the case if Bernadine was a white woman and she was writing the same book. You know She wouldn't have needed to be cajoled. And I've been to yeah. other literary parties where you know, people have been talking about Girl Woman Other, and then other people have said oh, I've read The Empress Babe, and then someone else has said, oh, I'm reading Mr. Loverman at the moment. And then someone said, oh, no, I don't fancy that. And I'm kind of thinking, why? It's a great novel, you know, it's just as sort of formally interesting as Girl Woman Other. In fact, it's a great sort of bridge between the, you know, the quite radical, I think, The Empress Babe, which is written in hendecasyllabic couplets, syllabic couplet, to the sort of more loose, more sort of natural-verse form of girl, woman, other, but just happens to be about two sort of queer men in their 70s, queer black men in their 70s, and they somehow think that that's not for them. And I don't know why that is. I, I think people need to see themselves in literature, but people do need to start challenging that, because what we have is a situation in this country, and probably almost everywhere in the West, where people are judged immediately by their gender, by the color of their skin, by their sexual orientation, we form an idea of who they are based on what we know of our experiences of people of with those descriptors. but we're also different where you know so many of us are not that, but we're sort of being almost sold into that immediate idea of who we are. You know, the racial microaggressions that Jesse faces in the novel, for example, um, in terms of people moving their bags slightly when they see him in the corner of their eye and, you know, not sitting in the seat that's vacant next to him on the tube because someone without looking... At him and making eye contact, sort of senses that they're a black male, and so they sort of hang back. And then when Jesse turns around after he's got off the train, he sees that that person's taken the seat. We just have this idea sometimes that people are um, either a danger or you know someone to be avoided in some way. But it's that kind of attitude that leads to the hostile environment. It's that kind of attitude that leads to black people being twice as likely to die of COVID-19 as white people. It's that kind of attitude that led um, Norman's doctor to basically sentence him to death because we refuse to sort of engage with people on an individual level. And, you know, you look at all these great books that have been written, these great stories that are being told of black people, and they're being ignored simply because certain people don't agree that it's their business.
0: And it feeds into the ongoing ignorance um, and systematic racism that has been a problem for so many years, decades, hundreds and hundreds of years. And I feel like these conversations that, as you have heard from other people saying we are having every 20 years, every 10 years, every five years, my massive concern and what absolutely makes me sick and makes my blood boil is that the trendingness of these conversations are perhaps linked to a hashtag um, if we're talking about social media. And it takes for that hashtag to, to stop trending for, for people to say, again, that I've ticked a box and I've had that conversation or I've read that book. It opens up a much wider discussion about why people feel that they have to stop at that point in time in having these conversations and reading these books. And my biggest hope, well, one of my biggest hopes is that it never finishes. It, it keeps mm. going. And that people like you, people like Charmaine, people like Dialogue, people like all the other imprints, the Black-owned businesses, the Black-owned bookshops are carrying this conversation so much further um, that there won't even be an opportunity for it to fall, because that conversation is still going to keep going. And it is I feel important as a reader and, and readers collectively around the world to, to help carry that conversation forward as well, by not only reading your book, by also learning from your book and and discussing your book and sharing your book and saying to somebody, this isn't just something that you should read to tick a box or because it's an observer bestseller, it's because it's an essential and important book for this time, for all time. And, and I really hope that people acknowledge that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the world as we know it and all the systems into which we're born or the hierarchies that we're part of were built by and for white middle-class men. You know, history has been written by them. They've decided when women and people of colour have been granted to at the table or not. You know, they're whom the entire capitalist system is designed around the protection and vindication of. You know, we're still part of what Bell Hooks calls an imperialist, capitalist, white Anglo-Saxon patriarchy. You know, we thought we'd solved a lot of problems when we voted. Well, not we, because, you know, I'm speaking as a British person. But when Americans, white and black voted Barack Obama into office, you know we saw that as just such a sort of you know a turnaround moment. having lived through the second half of the 20th century and through Jim Crow and through McCarthyism and through civil rights and through you know the Vietnam War and etc etc, you know finally we've put a black man in the White House and you know not even because he's a black man but because he's the best candidate for the job and yet ten years later we vote in, who are the current incumbent. And so, you know, we're kind of um, in a tough place where nothing's changed. Um, And it's very rare that we see these, you know, imperialist, capitalist, white, Anglo-Saxon patriarchs, as bell hooks calls them. It's very rare that we see them being objectified, shown at their worst, most pathetic, uh, and taught lessons by the people that they're supposed to be superior to and rule over. You know, one of the Formal lessons, few formal lessons i 've learned in creative writing is to as much as possible show rather than tell um, and i 've created a situation in which I guess black and white men can be in conversation, both naked from different sort of parts of the spectrum in terms of class, in terms of education, in terms of privilege, but to show them just being sort of completely naked, sharing fluids, etc, be completely bold and honest about it. Just so that we can, for the very first time, I suppose, sort of address two of the sort of most diametrically opposed sort of profiles in society, that between the black man and the white man.
0: And that, what I wanted to talk about as well, because as I've alluded to at the beginning, there are just so many things about your book that I absolutely loved, that I found immensely beautiful, that I had to put the book down and just literally just take it Mm -hmm. all in, because one... I was just like, I need to experience this right now and nothing else. Um, My phone was so far away. um, I was just immersed in this moment, but also to really understand the feelings that these characters were going through and they just felt so real. And one of the things I loved is just how real and honest the sex scenes in this book are. And you did a recent Evening Standard interview uh, back in April, I believe, and you said that it was important that these sex scenes were honest and raw seeing fluids, you know, seeing people bent over, the honesty behind the sex scenes, I feel made it all the more beautiful and all the more real to read and I would love for you to talk about why this honesty and truth was so important for you in terms of looking also at why the taste of the white middle-aged middle class middle income white man seems to be so much at the top billing of what we're used to seeing, what we're used to reading, what we're used to watching, and why you think that is so frequently the case in arts and essentially what you were trying to do with your book by making it so honest and raw.
1: I don't think it was a conscious decision to make it sort of honest and raw. I think first of all, um, I don't know what straight sex is like, but gay sex is all of those things. It's like it's, you know, very often transactional, very often You know, all about the excitement and, you know, the act itself rather than the sort of the flirtation that sort of leads up to it and then the sort of fag against your headboard afterwards. It's 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 not necessarily poetic. It's it's very direct and very sort of black and white almost. And you know, I didn't want to write badly about sex. I didn't want to sort of confuse anyone. And also we're sort of talking about, you know, Jesse McCarthy, who's, you know, up until this point Uh, been a very, very sheltered Jehovah's Witness um, who would never in a million years want his homosexuality to be discovered. He wants to keep a lid on it for all it's worth. But, you know, when he does find himself outside the community of Jehovah's Witnesses and in London, away from family, away from anyone who would know him or try to stop him from doing anything um, that he wants to do, he absolutely goes straight in and just wants to sort of experience it as sort of unadulteratedly as possible and you know we're, we're seeing everything from Jesse's frame of reference he's quite a naive young man you know f- in terms of everything when it you know whether it comes to brasseries where you know everything on the menu is French in, in terms of interacting with French and Australian and people from other parts of the world He's just never done any of this and he's never had sex with a man before and so I just needed all of it to be within his frame of reference. So it was just my objective to write with the veryisimilitude rather than you know any sort of conceit to be um, explicit or to sort of shock people. Um, but also because a lot of the sex scenes that you read in, in novels um, are by straight authors. You know, we we know what straight sex looks like. We can see it on primetime television. You know, we can you know we've got the apparatus for that. When it comes to gay sex scenes, in particular interracial or intergenerational sex scenes, we've just never seen them on TV. You know, you have to look at a very sort of recherché corner of like Pornhub if you want to see what that looks like. Um, and also, yeah, it was just just really important for me to um, just be in a tradition. You know, I read the swimming pool library just for, for like, the third time. Um, but while I was writing, um, Rain the Milk, and I noticed how Alan treated it. And, you know, Alan is the most beautiful, most refined writer, just has, you know, all of this um, culture and knowledge and access to words that I can only dream of. But yet he eschews all of that for a very sort of direct gaze on sex scenes between his characters and I'm like well if that's good enough for him then it's good enough for me. Um, I just want to be able to tell the story in a way that people can see and can understand and it's funny that the only sort of the only times that that people have said wow that's really explicit are are straight people. I think gay people are crying crying out for this kind of um, sex to be when I say gay, I mean queer generally, are crying out crying out for this kind of sex to be normalized um, so that we don't sort of have this kind of moralistic attitude towards it. And I think that's part of why Jesse goes into the sex that he does is so that he doesn't have the moralistic attitude anymore that's been prescribed to him by his um, religion, the same religion that's also toughed him out.
0: Yeah, and he very much... Forges his own path and creates his own narrative with it all as well. We haven't touched on yet the fact that Jesse is coming from the black country like you did, um, is coming from the church, the Jehovah's Witness church like you did, and you know, as you said, there are different things. He comes at a different year than than you did. Um, but to to come out of the church, to come out at the age of seventeen, and to walk away from. At your home, all that you've known, a church that you've grown up in, and it's it's all you know. And then to go all the way down to London, which I know isn't in terms of distance far from from, from the Black country, but it is a world away, isn't it, Absolutely. than, um, than what, he's, what he's used to. And when I was reading this part about Jesse, you know, literally walking away um, and going down to London and, and starting his life down there, it made me think about another book that I've read. So Samantha Allen wrote a book called Real Queer America. And she talks about how she was raised a Mormon man in the Mormon church. I asked her when I chatted with her for the podcast, you know, how do you, how do you approach religion when you are part of a church, you know, cause the, the Mormon church obviously being very different than Jehovah's witness, but essentially, you know, being gay, being queer, according to the Bible is not allowed. How do you mm. sit with that? How do you sit day after day sometimes with all the other witnesses, um, and and listen to things being said, and listen to people try and to change you into something that they want you to be, but that you will never be because that's not who you are. And mm-hmm. I would just love for you to talk about how difficult it was for you to attend services and to to look up to the other people within the church, knowing that in your heart you were never going to be what they were trying to make you be.
1: Uh, well, first of all, I have to say that one of the sort of key ways in which my Um, experience differs from Jesse's is that um, my dad's black he's still married to my mother they're Jehovah's Witnesses Um, still um, happily married doing their thing. I created the character of Graham as a sort of expedient way through to talking about black masculinity and how it can very often only be defined against white masculinity, or at least that's what white masculinity tries to tell black masculinity is the case. And I mean, I had a very different experience to uh, Jesse in terms of being disfellowship. It was nothing to do with me being gay. Like that was something I very much suppressed. Um, I would never admit I I didn't come out until I was 21, um, but I was disfellowshipped when I was 17. Like I said, nothing to do with being gay, the Fraser chapter of the novel, where Jesse sort of is slightly, sort of shows his hand slightly, um, so to speak. Yeah, that was very different from my own experience. Um, but it was pretty difficult being a 17-year-old who's been disfellowship from the organisation um, because I saw myself... You know, I was, I was very sort of indoctrinated and I saw my future as being, you know, getting married to a, a sister in the congregation, you know, having children, becoming an elder. And then, you know, when God wipes away the system of things and all of its evil, that I would be in paradise with my family and with other Jehovah's Witnesses and we'd sort of enjoy all that is good about living on planet Earth with them together. So when I was sort of cut off from that, it was extremely difficult sitting at the back of the Kingdom Hall, not allowed to talk to anyone, everyone wondering what I'd done that was so bad, you know, being 17, facing the challenges of normal 17-year-old experiences while feeling like an exile in my parents' house and being ostracized from the company of those I held dear, because if you're a witness, you're only supposed to associate with other witnesses. But when you're disfellowshipped, you can't communicate with anyone. I just didn't really understand the reasons behind my disfellowshipping either. So it was was just a very, very confusing time. Uh, And as I've got older, I've, I've, I've gained a greater understanding of the ways that black people and black males in particular are punished much more severely for things a white person might at worst get a telling off over. Jamila Jamil the other day on Instagram shared um, an image which has gone viral, which put side by side two American men, one white, one black, both around 20, both of them on armed robbery charges. One of whom got two years, the other got 26, the same judge. You know, your shoulders stoop a little more when you read something like that. You know, and I believe that over a lifetime, these little defeats pile up and contribute to the socio-environmental factors that age the body prematurely and reduce life expectancy in black men. But I wasn't aware of that disparity at 17. You know, I was this, you know, bright, polite, intelligent, friendly person who, you know, I was much more likely to be seen visiting an elderly sister in the congregation and helping her with their shopping than I was, you know, at someone's house playing computer games. Like, you know, I was probably more likely to be um, in the former. So for me, what happened to me completely sort of disrupted my already fragile sense of who I was, what my place in the world was, what my education should be. And, you know, eventually it took me a long time to realise that I had to find new parents, new friends, a new identity and a new reason to live.
0: And that disparity that you speak of is heartbreakingly present every single day. Brianna Taylor, who was killed in March, it's been over 100 days since she was murdered by three white Louisville police officers. And... They have yet to be arrested. Uh, One of them is to be fired. The other two, they were all put on administrative leave. And it makes me, every single bone in my body and every single uh, element of my body, absolutely sick that this disparity exists. It's absolutely sickening. And again, it feeds into that conversation that I'm glad that social media plays a part in, in terms of that we, we can all join together and have this conversation. But the change needs to be more than just the words and the hashtags that are currently being shared around
1: yeah and this sort of feeds back into what you were saying earlier about trends and you know people realizing that reading one book or reading even a a list of books and then going back to their old life is not going to cut it we are all permanently engaged in this because black history is british history is american history is world history it's part of all of us and, you know, we're not complete people. We're not complete societies. If we're completely ignoring one side of history simply because it doesn't sort of please us aesthetically or something. Yeah. You know, because it's, you know, it's not the classics and it's not sort of, you know, Western-based. You just have to look at the way George Floyd was treated by police for trying to pay for something with a, a fake $20 bill, which, yeah, fine, slap his hand, but don't kill him. Eric Garner was choked to death for selling cigarettes on the road and not having a permit you know but then you look at the way dylan Roof shot up a church and murdered nine black people and then you know it was almost as if the police were engaged in hero worship the way they sort of led him gently away to be arrested if all things being equal he should have been crushed to death at the scene for what he did but no he shot nine people dead and then sort of laid the the, the gun down and sort of blamed black men for raping white women on his behavior and you know as black people we see that and we sort of connect that to the racial microaggressions that we deal with you know the sort of everyday stories of being overlooked for jobs that we're overqualified for in favor of a white man or whatever all of these things that we sort of suffer on a daily basis you know saying on the news on the BBC news that we're more likely to die of Covid and then experiencing I guess ostracization by people in your sort of local community who don't want to be anywhere near you because all they can see is that you're a black person who is more likely to have Covid and therefore more more likely to die and more likely to infect them you know it's hard living that life every day and facing racism on so many levels on all levels it's just it's really hard and it's really it's really difficult to um to keep to stay positive and you know I really have to rely on the strength of my elders at times and and read books by James Baldwin I always revisit The Fire Next Time and Notes of a Native Son just to sort of to know that it's not just me
0: that there has um, been someone else that has experienced this before
1: Exactly. Yes. Uh, and can articulate it in a, in a particular way as well but, that gets inside.
0: Looking at something like the Tulsa massacre for someone like Trump, who is the very worst type of person because the Tulsa massacre was not part of their day-to-day life or their narrative or anything of that nature, it therefore becomes irrelevant and it therefore becomes something that isn't even discussed or, or considered because it's just a place to have a rally for his supporters. And it doesn't matter that it's on the anniversary of one of the worst killings of history in in the US.
1: I think, you know, when it comes to the the Tulsa rally, and I'm really glad that it um, proved to be the flop that it should have been. Trump knew exactly what he was doing in that situation. He knew that it was, you know, he wanted to do it on Juneteenth as well. I mean, what his only care is that he gets voted in again at the next election. He only cares about holding on to power. And he knows that there are re- enough racist white people in America who don't care about the economy, don't care who's dying, don't care about anything, but they are completely um, sold on his politics. And he needs to do whatever he can to sort of uh, keep these people on site who will vote him in at, at the November election. So he spots this um, opportunity to to bring his people together at a place with such historical significance to black people as a means of saying a big F you to black people, a big F you to Black Lives Matter, um, and to perpetuate and um, vindicate white supremacy and put everyone else in their place. That's the kind of rat-like, verminous opportunist he is. And, you know, fair play to, um, you know, I heard it was like a group of K-pop fans who purchased loads of tickets for the rally. And so it looked as if it was sold out, but actually only about a thousand people actually were able to buy tickets. The rest of the people who were there were all sort of paid actors and security, plainclothes security, et cetera, et cetera. This is what I'm reading anyway. You know, I'm hyper aware of the language around race, obviously. And so when the virus started in China, you know, it's sort of tapped into this sort of underlying um, anti-China sentiment that people have in the West where, uh, and, you know, I could talk about even people in my family saying stuff like this, that, you know, they'll say things like Chinese people are dirty and they'll say, you know, it's no wonder, you know, they eat this, that and the other, if they eat cats and dogs, no wonder they uh, unleashed this virus on the world no wonder it started there because of the way chinese people are blah 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 blah. and you saw obviously a lot of anti-chinese sentiment a lot of racism against people from vaguely east asian backgrounds um people getting attacked and saying get the fuck out of our country you chinese da 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 but then when it started coming across to italy the language changed completely and even on the news, you hear reporters saying, what is it about Italy that makes coronavirus a hotspot? The, the coded language is Italy is, you know, crucible of Western civilization. It's, you know, one of the sort of greatest tourist destinations in the world.
0: It's almost an idolized, you know, idealized. I'd yeah, yeah, exactly. I'd, exactly. Yeah.
1: And I didn't see any Italians being racially abused or told to leave the country because Italians are Westerners at the end of the day. They're yeah. white. Um, and so if it, if it starts happening to white people in white countries, then we start to have a different conversation about what's going on and why. We start to talk about different things in different ways. And I really saw that balance shift and I saw the conversation happen differently. I saw the, the, the language around the coronavirus really change when it became something that white people yeah. had to do, and that wasn't something that was happening in the Far East necessarily anymore. You know, in the Far East, you know, China might be having a slight sort of resurgence of cases, but, you know, 4,000, was it 4,000 deaths in a country of over 1.4 billion people? Um, you know, they dealt with it. And, you know, it's not necessarily the problem. It's, it's it's how you deal with it.
0: Well, and also the the pictures that were being used in the news, only picking photos in Chinatown, or only picking photos of Asian people on the tube, that it was just despicable the way that it yeah. was broadcasted. And that mania that it created was not only offensive, but it was also unnecessary because people Mm. weren't being part of the, the conversations that needed to be had. They weren't asking the right questions. They were just pointing a finger all the way over to China and saying, you know, Mm. you're to blame. I appreciate we've been talking about extremely important and essential themes and topics, but I want to go to love, Mm. and not just my love for you and love for Rainbow Milk, but I want to talk about the Bruce Grove section. This, to me, I actually messaged you before I read it, while I was reading it, after I read it. Apologies to Paul for all the messages I sent him, but I wanted to talk about how this section, for me, and I am going to be writing to the Pulitzer Prize Committee uh, shortly (laughs) to, to say this but this section deserves its own Pulitzer Prize. I don't know if there is a Pulitzer Prize for sections of books, but if there isn't. I don't isn't... think
1: there is for anything non-American. To okay, be well, you know but...
0: what? I'm changing the rules. Um, as an American, <laughs> I'm changing the rules. And, you know, I can't obviously speak for other readers, whether you've read this section, whether you, you know, haven't read it, but in the space of five chapters, I experienced all five senses. So I cried, I laughed. I could taste the champagne that Jesse and Owen were drinking. I could see the Christmas tree. I could hear the music, Owen explaining the music to Jesse and his inspirations. I just felt like this was, you know, with everything that Jesse had had gone through previously and leading up to this, I just, actually, I just, for my own selfish reasons, I just want you to talk about this section because I love it so much.
1: Thank you for all those very kind and generous words. Yeah, Bruce Greer is the centerpiece of the novel. It's kind of the reason the novel exists was to to write about um, a corresponding period in my life. It doesn't shy away from trauma, but it's where Jesse sees for the first time that he can have a future for all the reasons that you've um, outlined. You know, I'm a romantic at heart and, you know, I wanted to unpack the trauma I experienced at that, that corresponding point in my life whilst creating the fictional character that i would have liked to have had with me at that time you know because jesse is not only looking for love he's also looking for a father figure in many ways and you know he lives with Owen. um they for people who've not read the book live in a part of north london called bruce grove part of tottenham part of the haringey borough who you know and it's christmas day 2002 they're both for different reasons unable to spend Christmas with family and so they're together without having planned to spend Christmas together. And they like each other, they've lived with each other for a few months um, but haven't really got to know each other that well. Owen is someone from a privileged background but not as privileged as some. He was raised in a model village on the Wirral but his father worked for Unilever and so he experienced a middle-class childhood on a working-class ticket. He got into Cambridge on merit um, where for the first time he studied alongside genuinely privileged people who didn't necessarily get in on merit. Um, and it made him ask a lot of questions about his identity and privilege. And he's a decade older than Jesse, and he's able to pass on some of that thinking and knowledge. And that's not just in a didactic way, but also in terms of sharing, like I say, the sort of inspirations that he's received from music and from poetry. Um, Owen is a poet himself. And Jesse's just never met anyone like him before, no one who's that generous, no one who's just sort of, you know, had the privilege to dedicate his life to, to thinking and to um, to thinking existentially and to uh, and to creative and dedicating their lives to creativity, which, you know, Jesse needs more than anything at that point to replace this lost centre of gravity that his uh, IJ, witness upbringing provided. So, yeah, I wish I could say that I just sat and wrote that section, but it, it comes from years and years of piecemeal writing and rewriting of my own experience when when first moving to London. But then when I got the book deal and it became serious and it became a novel, um, it had to stop being about me and became more about the period itself. And so that's why I sort of had to bring in so many sort of references to music and to uh, and to, uh, to addressing the, the, the needs of the period.
0: Oh, and as you just kind of mentioned, for anyone who's read it, you'll know exactly what I'm about to say. For people who haven't read it, Um, I'm kind of jealous because you get to experience it for the first time. But I'm just so happy that, you know, Jesse and Owen come together in the way that um, they both want. I don't think that gives too much away. It's just such a a beautiful, beautiful section of any book I've ever read. And I would be lying if I said this section wasn't one of the reasons, one of the contributing reasons why your book was one of my favorites of this year. And it's just written in such a a beautiful way. I feel like I'm overusing beautiful, but until there is a word that actually symbolizes your book, Paul, I'm going to have to use beautiful because I don't think that word's been invented yet um, because it's beyond beautiful. I wish that this conversation would never end, but it obviously has to end. So I would love for you to imagine that your book, Rainbow Milk, has been placed on a shelf and it is great literature frozen in time. And I would love to know which authors and books you would want to sit alongside yours on the shelf
1: I think in terms of contemporary books, uh, definitely Queenie by Candice Carter-Williams, Girl, Woman, Other, the aforementioned by Bernadine Evaristo, definitely Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan. I feel like we were launched at the same time by the Observer's top 10 books of 2020 list, and we just seem to have been in a lot of the same conversations since, so uh, I'd definitely like to be next to her. And it's a great book and she's a great writer with a great future. I think in terms of, you know, going back a little bit further, definitely Alan Hollinghurst's The Line of Beauty, which was a huge inspiration for me and a hugely providential novel for, you know, being a recently out gay man. You know, being the first gay novel to win the Booker Prize, being the first gay author to, to sort of receive that honour. Anything by James Baldwin, particularly, I've spoke about them already, but um, his non-fiction works, The Fire Next Time, and Notes of a Native Son, just really open my eyes to a shared experience with other black men that is that is not necessarily the same because african american experiences are so different from black british ones but there is, there's there's still a lot there in common tony morrison i've had the privilege of um having a really sort of close relationship with her books this year i've read five of her novels this year many of them for the first time and there's you know, very few people like her who just writes about these sort of uncanny communities, majority black communities in you know, the South and in Ohio, etc., where the most extraordinary things happen to the most extraordinary people. She's one of the greats of all time. Marcel Proust, you know, I read In Search of Lost Time over a two year period in my mid 20s. And it just really sort of introduced me to my own brain almost And just made me think of everything differently and more, you know, expansively. And George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London as well. I think I would love to be there. Um, It was the first time I'd ever read a narrative about, you know, someone working in a kitchen and working in a restaurant. And that was very true to my experience. I mean, there's a million more. But um, a novel called Against Nature by Joris Carl Huisman who was a French civil servant. And this book was published in Paris in 1884 and was sort of quite quickly considered to be contraband. It was a great um, inspiration for people like Oscar Wilde and the other symbolists. And someone I lived with in Bruce Grove when I first moved to London in 2004 pushed that book into my path and um, told me, you know, you should read this because it's about someone who loses their sense of gravity just like you have. And I gave that to her and to give to Jesse. And I hope that Jesse had the same kind of response to it as I have. It's a really beautiful book that I think everyone should seek out.
0: Oh my gosh, that is a bookshelf of bookshelves. My goodness, <laughs> that is absolutely incredible. Um, and you. I mean, everything you've just said, I uh, completely agree. All of those authors are legends. Um, I've
1: mentioned others as well earlier on, like Buchi and Macheta and uh, Carol Phillips, S.I. with Martin. Um, just, all <laughs> just all the authors just all of just them. read 50 books a year minimum
0: I mean and... that's my goal Paul I just want to say from the bottom of my heart of hearts how immensely honored and privileged this conversation has been uh, I will cherish it forever and I just want to say as a reader and as someone who is in awe of you on a regular basis I just cannot thank you enough for this absolutely incredible book I know that it has been a whirlwind. And I know that this might not have been the launch that was originally predicted. But as you said, I feel that this book has come at such a crucial and important time. And I just know that people will be picking this up and loving it for months and years and decades to come. So I just can't thank you enough.
1: I hope so. And thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading.